You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm John Ford, in for Kelly Evans, and here is what's ahead. Existential threat and a big opportunity all at once. That's how one of our guests describes AI's impact on the cloud companies. He brings two names that he sees getting it right and one most at risk. Plus, tech has been on a tear. A handful of mega cap names propping up the whole market. But for how much longer? Chartmaster Carter Worth says it is time to trim. He joins us ahead. And markets taking a leg lower on reports that debt ceiling talks have stalled. This as the president attends the G7 in Japan. And one of our guests says it's the biggest economic threat, not just for the U.S., but for U.S. allies. We have the latest and we begin with the markets, of course, and Dom Chu with the numbers. And we slowed some momentum down because of some of those headlines that you went out with regard to the debt ceiling and everything else, John. So right now it's right across the screen, but just fractionally. So we went from fractional gains earlier in the session to these fractional losses that you're seeing now. The Dow Industrial is down about one quarter of 1%, 75 points lower, 33,458. The S&P 500 is now pushing 4,200 and it got above there at one point today, but now back below that mark down at about six points or about well, close to one to two tenths of 1% there. Now, just going to kind of put some context again. At the highs, we were up about 14 points at the lows, down 18. So trying to find the middle of that trading range right now. The Nasdaq Composite, the underperformer, but still only down one-third of 1%, 12650 the last trade. John mentioned some of the headlines around the debt ceiling and lawmakers on the Republican side of things walking out saying that the president is being unreasonable with some of their demands. That particular set of headlines did drive some downside to the markets overall, but also we saw a drop in some certain parts of the interest rate complex. We're looking right now specifically at the longer-term 10-year Treasury note yield, which went lower as bond prices went higher. So a bit of that flight to safety, given what we've seen there, concerns about the economy, what could happen, maybe at least shorter term for U.S. debt, watching that. And by the way, those moves and those same headlines triggered a reversal and a sharper sell-off intraday in regional bank stocks. Now, they've had a pretty big bounce off the lows over the course of the last week or so. And because of that, we saw some profit taking. But as you can see, just around there, when some of the headlines around the Fed, Jay Powell's comments at a monetary policy is, uh, policy conference, as well as some of those debt ceiling headlines, drove downside for the regional bank trade. We'll continue to watch that. This ETF is down about two and a quarter percent. And then the stock of the day is a big drop, and I do mean big, in shares of footwear and athletic apparel may, or retailer Foot Locker, which is down 26% right now. This after coming and reporting earnings and revenues that missed analyst estimates, also a cut to their full-year core forecast across several metrics. The company saying that they've had to discount more than they thought they were going to to move certain merchandise. So Foot Locker shares very much in focus, down 26%. John, I will send things back over to you. Dom, thanks. A stumble for Foot Locker. Uh, and as Dom mentioned, stocks taking a big leg lower on the news. Republicans are, quote, pushing pause on debt limit talks. Just yesterday, both Congress and the White House had struck optimistic tones about reaching a deal. Also in D.C. today, Fed Chair Powell sitting down with former Chair Ben Bernanke to discuss the economy, saying he has not yet made any decisions about whether rates are, quote, sufficiently restrictive. Kayla Tausche is covering the latest on the debt ceiling showdown, while Steve Leisman has more on what could be next for rate hikes. Kayla, let's start with you. Is this a fundamental difference, you think, in what's happening with these debt ceiling negotiations or just a continuation of posturing? I mean, it looked like this was going to be hard to do. Is it just still hard or is it getting harder? 
It is still hard, and perhaps this was always bound to happen, John. Negotiations over the debt ceiling reaching this impasse today. After days of momentum that led Republicans, Democrats, and even the Treasury Secretary to praise the positive path emerging toward a deal. But now they're getting down to the really uh, tough substance and down to the details, and that's led talks to be off until further notice. Here's Congressman Garrett Graves, who was appointed by Speaker Kevin McCarthy to represent Republicans. Here's Graves speaking earlier today. The House, the House passed a strong bill that has great savings in it, and it's responsible, and it puts us on a path to bend the curve. And until people are willing to have reasonable conversations about how you can actually move forward and do the right thing, then we're not going to sit here and talk to ourselves. So he's saying the House already passed a bill. Now the White House needs to be more reasonable and to negotiate from that as a basis. Well, the Biden administration is suggesting it's the other side that's being unreasonable. A White House official tells me the president understands Republicans have issues with their vote count. And Republicans, this official says, need to understand what the White House needs to deliver Democratic votes, which are required for any agreement to pass. They can't get everything they want. A spokesperson separately said there's still a path to a bipartisan budget agreement if both parties negotiate in good faith. Meanwhile, the top Senate Republican Mitch McConnell tweeting that it's up to President Biden and Speaker McCarthy to personally broker a deal that they are the only people who can do this and that time is of the essence. President Biden is being updated around the clock by staff in Hiroshima, Japan, where he's attending the G7 summit of the world's largest economies. The debt ceiling discussions have already cut his trip short, and they are now threatening to overshadow big picture discussions on Ukraine and China, and they'll also take center stage during a press conference he's set to hold over the weekend, John. Okay, uh, Kayla, stay with us for a moment. I, I also want to bring in CNBC contributor and CEO of the Atlantic Council, Fred Kemp. Uh, Fred, you say, since we're talking geopolitics and the economy, the biggest economic threat to U.S. allies is not Russia or even China. It is U.S. debt default if that becomes a real possibility. Now, is it the default itself that's the threat or just playing with fire here and touching the stove? Well, two things. First of all, uh, in the War of 1812, when the British were losing the Battle of Lake Erie, which we all, of course, remember so well, <laughs> the British commandant said to Major General William Henry Harrison, we have met the enemy and they are us. And that must be the way President Biden is feeling right now in Japan, where uh, this makes him not look like the leader that everyone wants to follow. And, and even if this debt ceiling issue gets solved, and it really is a bigger economic threat for this year than either Russia or China, even if it gets solved, what's lingering behind this is a reputation that the U.S. has gained over the last few years of being even more politically volatile, potentially economically unstable. And it's not just the debt ceiling. It also is our recent basic banking crisis. Well, it was the political violence and instability of January 6th. Right. Well, Fred, and, and also leading up to the 2024. Isn't elections. the mo I mean, I, I'm no political expert here, but isn't the most likely near a near term outcome that the can gets kicked down the road a bit? Right. Uh, as we approach the X date, that somehow they figure out this is taking us longer to figure out we're going to do some sort of an extension uh, thing. Neither one of us like it. But that's and the ex the uncertainty just gets extended. What does that do to the economy, to America's reputation, the ability to, um, you know, move forward on, on these geopolitical issues? So our allies believe that this will be solved. And I think markets, by and large, believe by and large, believe that as well. Uh, and so it isn't so much 
the, the medium long-term issue isn't that. It's what kind of cloud does this cast over us? The, uh, the Chinese, of course, will uh, use this as a demonstration to the people that surround them. You mm. really can't trust the Americans. We don't know where things go. And don't forget, the part of the trip that was canceled, which you say, well, why is it such a big deal that the president can't go to Papua New Guinea? Uh, but it's a big deal because it was planned for months. Okay. No president has ever been to the Pacific Islands. They are strategically located, and China is investing heavily in them, including the potential of, of, of military presence. Kayla, I wonder, can you tell us how the, the unusual structure of the House right now, as far as Republicans are concerned, plays into this? We heard from the Freedom Caucus earlier today saying, uh, don't negotiate here. Speaker McCarthy is in an unusually tenuous position as a leader here, even if he can put together a coalition of some Republicans plus some Democrats. Couldn't that cost him his job? Yes, possibly. I mean, he barely stitched together a vote for the bill that passed in late April, the Limit Save Grow bill that they're using um, as the starting point for these negotiations. But, John, even if he's able to get House support for whatever he negotiates with the White House, you still need 60 votes in the Senate where Democrats have a slim majority there. So when I was referencing what this White House official told me earlier, which was sort of it's OK if we lose the extremes of either party, because really the answer lies in the middle. You really need the moderate wings of the Republican Party and the moderate wings of the Democratic Party to sign on to whatever is negotiated. So, yes, it's OK if the Freedom Caucus wants to make noise on the side and say, you know, we don't like the direction that negotiations are going in and you have a handful of uh, more than a dozen Senate Democrats saying we think that you have to raise taxes and use the 14th Amendment uh, to continue issuing debt if we have to. But that's just noise at this point, because I think the White House knows that it has to broker a deal that has both sides here. And so, it, you know, I think one thing that you can read from what's happening right now is these are politicians who are speaking to their base, showing that they are holding their line and holding their positions, even if the eventual outcome is still different. Fred, in an ordinary session of Congress, I would find that reassuring, right, because the speaker's position would be relatively safe. But if Speaker McCarthy does this moderates from both parties thing, he is vulnerable from any individual members of the right wing who say, hey, we don't like the, the way you're leading things, right? I mean, this seems to be maximum possibility of not coming to a compromise right now. And I wonder if you think the market has that fully appreciated. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and what's interesting about this as seen from the world, and these are, these are also investors in markets, is uh, that our domestic dysfunction has enormous geo, uh, geopolitical political significance that our members of Congress don't seem to understand. And of course, it has market significance as well. So we're really seeing uh, domestic disturbance leading to geopolitical, uh, geopolitical instability. And that, of course, affects markets at the same time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it means we've got to keep watching the numbers, uh, both when we're talking about votes and when we're talking about the markets. Fred, Kayla, thank you. And let's turn now to the other big story today, Powell's comments on inflation. Our Steve Leisman has a recap. Steve. Hey, John, thanks. Yeah, Fed Chair Jay Powell countering some hawkish commentary from his colleagues this week with remarks that were much more neutral about the possibility of a June rate hike. Powell saying that tighter credit conditions from banks could ease the pressure on the Fed to raise rates, that the stance of policy is restrictive now when the Fed faces 
uncertainty about what effects tightening of bank lending standards will have on the economy. We've come a long way in policy tightening and the stance of policy is restrictive. And we face uncertainty about the lagged effects of our tightening so far and about the extent of credit tightening from recent banking stresses. Uh, Powell went on to say that the risks of doing too much or doing too little are more balanced now. For much of the tightening cycle, you remember, he would emphasize the risk of doing too little. But it was not all dovish. He emphasized that inflation is too high, that the data suggests it will take time for inflation to come back down. Well, the result of all this, the probability of a June rate hike halved or more than halved around 40% at the peak this morning to around 18%. Now it actually has just fallen to around 13% after we made that chart. It had been elevated because of remarks from two Fed presidents squarely putting a June rate hike on the table. Powell didn't take it off the table, but he made clear it was not the first item perhaps on the menu. Sounded like he won't know what he's ordering at the June meeting, John, until the last bit of data come in. We're, we're waiting for that last bit of data on so many fronts, Steve. Stick around. Between the debt ceiling, the bank's inflation, what's the biggest factor for the markets? How do you position from here? My next guest, staying defensive, hedging equities with gold and silver. Michael Cugino, president of uh, the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds, joins me now. Michael, um, <laughs> how defensive do you have to be given the, the debt ceiling uncertainty and the questions about what the Fed's going to do. And if the Fed doesn't continue to hike, is it because economic conditions are so bad that you had to be defensive anyway? Yeah, good afternoon, John. Yeah, I mean, the equity market, or at least uh, a few stocks in the equity market, would lead you to believe you don't need to be defensive at all. Um, you know, if you look at uh, the concentration in a dozen stocks or so, that's responsible for most of the gains, and it's certainly tech-heavy. When you look at the broader market, your break-even is slightly negative on most broader indices. So there is reservations there from investors on, on whether you should be buying stocks. Uh, on the other side of the equation, I think you have to take a look at what the Fed is going to do. I think Steve's summary was great. I thought the tone was measured today. And to me, it argued for a watch and wait type of stance in June, barring some other data that really, uh, you know, materially contradicts um, the current state of affairs in the next month or so. So from that standpoint, um, that would be bullish. Um, so investors are caught in the middle. They're, they're vacillating, depending on the news of the day, between <laughs> taking on more risk and, and buying stocks and being first to take care of that rally or being defensive and, and hedging and being diversified. Michael, give me your perspective on the state of today's broad market risk, particularly with uh, the, the major indices and with ETFs, because not only are big stocks popular right now because they're seen as safe and have their valuations gotten stretched, but they're so heavily weighted in so many indices and ETFs right now. Yeah, it's really interesting. This year, you know, there was a theme that has actually worked, so it's hard to argue with it, at least up until it doesn't, that uh, large cap tech is, is, is recession proof, you know? And so you've had a lot of money flows go into that. The stocks have all gone up, they've performed. It's really the only part of the equity market that really has performed. And so, you know, until it doesn't work, it's working. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily generally associate tech investing with, with possible recessions, though. So it is a rather interesting short-term anomaly that I guess we need to see mm. what happens in the future. Okay, so um, You know, from our perspective, we would rather be more broadly based. Um, 
we, we believe that there is substantial risk. Um, I, I, I would say, look, the, the, the soft landing argument is a possibility. It's a reasonable one as long as labor holds up. But labor is a lagging indicator. And if labor falls out of bed, then I think you have a much different scenario. But at the moment, it has. But we would wait more towards the recessionary risk in that the tightening of credit, the tightening of liquidity, um, the aggressiveness of the rate hikes that haven't really fully been, affected, uh, been felt in the economy yet would argue for a slowdown sometime in the second half of the year or 24. Um, and the Fed would be in a difficult position to cut too quickly okay. because inflation is stubborn and maybe declining. So, Steve Leisman, uh, about four weeks from now, what is it, June 14th, I think? is when we, we get that next Fed meeting. What are the key data points ahead of that that Powell and the rest of the committee is going to be watching and that investors should also be watching? It seems like they'd like to pause, but who knows whether they can. Well, I think there's a couple things that are out there. I think the first thing is watching the trajectory of growth. It's interesting. Um, I've seen some uh, 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 forecast, John, that growth may be accelerating this quarter. Uh, we did, you know, one and change last quarter. We we might do two, according to some estimates I've seen. Some are down at one, but it certainly hasn't fallen out of bed. And, and just to Michael's comment, what's been fascinating to me is the ability of companies to make money. We know they could make money before inflation. They're still making money uh, during inflation. And it seems like if inflation were to fall, companies could still make money. Again, uh, to your point, depending upon how and why inflation falls, if it falls because of a deep recession, that's another story. We'll also have Johnson unemployment report, and we're watching those weekly jobless claims. Uh, an interesting factor we saw this week was claims went up on a weekly basis, but the continuing claims actually fell. Seemed like people losing their jobs are going back to work. So the Fed will be gauging the tightness of the job market, and of course, there are those inflation reports we'll be watching to see. Uh, uh, something the Fed officials pointed us to this week, John. Not just is it coming down, but guys like Jefferson um, and Bullard have been watching um, the pace, at, and Logan have been watching the pace at which it's been falling, and they remarked that they thought the pace of it falling had been too slow. So many mixed messages. It's like the data is giving us an on the other hand every day. Steve, Michael, thank you. But that's the that the, you need that, John, for your for your for your weekly set for your daily segment. I don't do, you? I do. Full employment. For John Ford. <laughs> Steve, thanks. <laughs> Coming up, <laughs> the debt ceiling and geopolitics are the uh, not the only things keeping investors on edge. Up next, we're going to look at the big rally in big tech we were just talking about and what the charts this time say about its staying power. Plus, which names within tech are best positioned for the AI gold rush? The industry one analyst says we'll win it all. Still ahead. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Just a handful of stocks responsible for the recent rally. But how long can they keep holding up the market? Deirdre Bosa has more in today's Tech check. Ah, uh, tech check. D. Good old tech check. <laughs> to get an idea, John, of just how much mega cap tech is leading the market this year, look at this chart from Bank of America. It tells you that we are currently seeing the greatest outperformance of tech versus the S&P 500 ever. We'll get that chart out for you, but you will see that the previous two times 
We even came close to this kind of gap. There it is. They were followed by major tech busts. Now, of course, tech looks a lot different now than it did back then. It is more concentrated in a handful of companies worth hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars with real earnings and diversified business models. And it's partly underpinned by that transformational platform shift in AI that has not been seen since the advent of the iPhone, the internet, or the industrial revolution, depending on who you ask. Given their size, though, this run-up this year has been astounding. NVIDIA, Meta, they have more than doubled in value. Google is up 14% since that I.O. event last week where it came out with its generative AI search model. And Amazon is up nearly 6% this week. So despite or maybe because of those gains, investors, they're looking for that next big winner in the space. Mizuho, John, thinks that Oracle could be next. It's only up some 26% this year. And Mizuho says it could talk up GPU and NVIDIA chips and get a stock boost as new money comes in for the chase. And it is a late reporter. So maybe you could see that pop if they play that earnings call right. Dee, it's so interesting. There's a, a huge difference between how the biggest tech names are uh, responding. And I'd even throw Oracle in there. It's huge. And just some pretty big tech names. You look at uh, semiconductor names year to date, like Qualcomm, like Texas Instruments. Um, they're flattish. Uh, IBM, which had a great 2022, flattish to down. So yeah. it's not tech across the board necessarily that's outperforming, right? It's the very biggest market caps. And it is so concentrated, right? That's what you're getting at. It's sort of these eight names that have basically accounted for the, all, all the S&P's gains this year. And, you know, I think that you were talking about this with your last guest before the break, kind of seen as more recession-proof and maybe a safe haven because of those gigantic balance sheets. And that's really what's different this time than those previous two peaks is that, you know, these are fortresses. They have so much money on their balance sheets. And even though growth may come down and has come down for them, um, they're just seen as safety plays. All right. The view from Techland, literally, with the Bay Bridge behind you. <laughs> D, thanks. Uh, let's dive deeper now into the charts. My next guest saying the move in tech is overdone. It's time to reduce or hedge long exposure in the sector. Let's bring in Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Carter, um, is this tech overall or is this the very biggest tech that it's time to rotate out of? Because there is a difference, is there not? Absolutely. Just what you were citing. A major difference. But I think before the concentration issue that you all are discussing is important, but it's always with us. If you look back over the last 35 years, since the beginning of GICS data from Standard & Poor's, the top 10 stocks on average are about 20% weight. But now the top 10 are 30. And of course, you know, the top two, Apple and Microsoft, are almost 15. And the last time we were this concentrated in two names goes back to 1978, AT&T and IBM obviously much smaller companies now. Uh, but what we have, of course, is a big milestone this week. The S&P 500 information technology sector just this week recouped all of its losses relative to the S&P associated with the dot-com peak. And we might have a chart of that, but what it is a testament to is the, is the uh, problem with overpaying for something. Uh, in real estate, in the market, in anything. And so that's a long time, 23 years and three months, just to get back to even with the general market. Well, that's the preceding chart you had there. That, that's yeah, what it's a please. testament to, but I got to stop you there because it looks like this isn't the first time we've bumped our heads on that ceiling, right, or close to it. So is it, what is it also a signal of? Right. So the other chart you had up there prior to my coming on was going back to 1974. Now, again, in 1974, there was little to no tech, and IBM was probably half the weight 
of the sector, and IBM was the most valuable company in the world at one point. Um, before, in principle, exceeding a former high, any stock, currency, index, commodity will have to contend with it, which is to say we're here at a level where you're likely to back and fill at a minimum or back away. Hence the judgment to reduce exposure to the largest names, NVIDIA, Apple, Microsoft, and do what um, you maybe were intimating, double back and look at some of the mid-cap names that have lagged and play those for catch-up. Okay, and how are we looking in the way some of those mid-cap names or indices charts look versus you know, today's you know, flavors of the decade? Um, you mentioned names like AT&T, for example, and IBM that are not the flavors now. Intel, I'd throw in there for a couple decades uh, ago as well. So maybe the big names are, are always popular, but the big names are always changing as well. Ever-changing. And in fact, of course, we know, think about it, U.S. Steel, of course, now going back a long way, most valuable company in the world, General Motors, um, GE. And so it's ever-changing. And, and again, this will happen too. One day, Apple will not be the thing that it is, and Microsoft as well. But for now, they are the kings. The question is, are they a little bit steep, uncorrected, or in the fundamental parlance, are they expensive? I suspect it's right to reduce exposure. The whole market's expensive. But these larger companies are especially expensive. So does that mean X these larger companies? Maybe some parts of the market are, are reasonably priced when you look at the charts. How should investors at home think about that, relatively speaking? Sure. Well, we have such a bifurcated circumstance throughout the market and uh, not only tech versus the market, but let's take consumer, for instance. You have restaurant industry groups making all-time highs, home builders, and yet retailers are at 52-week lows. And one of the problems with bifurcation is it's almost always resolved by generally lower prices. And so consider this fact, the Russell 3000, right, represents 98% of the investable capital in the United States. Half the stocks in that index are actually below where they were on the lows of October 13th, meaning we are so dependent on just a few, and that usually ends poorly. Well, to use the cliche that we tend to hear a lot on this network, it, it really is a stock picker's market then. Like, really, there you go. Indeed. When you, when you bring out that October 13th number. Let's go hunting for those deals. Carter, thank you. Carter Worth. Thanks, John. Still ahead, an exclusive first look inside Amazon HQ2. Will it be enough to take the sting out of Andy Jassy's controversial call for workers to return to the office? Our Diana Olick has a sneak peek ahead of its opening. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. The Georgia prosecutor investigating Donald Trump and his allies for possible interference in the 2020 election signaled charges could come in early August. Fulton County District Attorney, Fan, Attorney Fannie Willis asked a judge to not schedule trials and in-person hearings during the first two full weeks of August. She did not give a reason for that unusual request, but Willis previously warned law enforcement of possible backlash during the same period. The CDC reported another death linked to contaminated eye drops, bringing the total now to four. 81 people have been infected with a highly drug-resistant bacteria after using the eye drops. 14 have gone blind 
Patients reported using 10 different brands, but the most cases are tied to EzraCare artificial tears. Jeff Bezos' space company won a $3.4 billion contract to build the lander for NASA's Artemis 5 lunar mission, uh, set for 2029. The total cost of the Blue Origin-led effort estimated to be around $7 billion. The goal is to deliver astronauts to the moon's surface later this decade. John, back to you. Tyler, thanks. Coming up, this name outperforming the market since the launch of ChatGPT in November. Our next guest says investors are rewarding its clear AI strategy. We're going to look at the winners and losers in the space. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Artificial intelligence has been a big, big catalyst for the big tech names recently. Microsoft up 24% since it announced new versions of Bing and Edge, powered by ChatGPT. Amazon is up 20% since announcing its Bedrock program. And Google has climbed more than 16% in the days following its I.O. event. But our next guest says it's the cloud names that are going to come out on top in the AI arms race. He's got a few key companies he is watching. With us now is Tim Horan cloud and communications analyst at Oppenheimer. Tim, um, I'm a little surprised by this in a way because these hyperscaler cloud names have such high valuations. One might argue AI success is already baked in. So why them and not application players to win in AI? Uh, great question. Well, first, we don't really know who the application winners are going to be. Um, we think most SaaS or most software will be embedded with intelligence at this point. But the business models are not really, really clear, but we do know that the ARM suppliers are usually winners in these process. That was the kind of the case uh, back in the internet 20 years ago and has been over that time period. And the cloud providers in general, if you have the best infrastructure, people are gonna generally ride on top of that infrastructure. And the big three hyperscalers at this point really have the scale to train these AI models and to host these applications. What about some of the kind of semi-infrastructure, maybe kind of DevOps type players like um, like your ServiceNows, your MongoDBs, even your Snowflakes that are dealing in data and trying to create a platform effect for themselves, even though they're not hyperscalers. Are those too risky? I mean, it's all going to depend on execution at this point. And uh, these companies are a layer above the cloud, and that's going to be needed. We're, we're going to basically need to uh, label the data. You're going to need to curate the data. There's a whole host of suppliers and a whole new food chain that's going to be uh, required out there. Um, but there's massive opportunity for most companies that have been involved in the cloud for a long period of time. And the cloud may evolve from a technology perspective and probably will to a much more decentralized look and edge-based look over time. But uh, right now, we think we're going to see an acceleration in cloud growth in, in 24, 25, almost entirely driven by AI at this point. And that whole food chain of suppliers should benefit. Now, you've pointed out digital ocean as being at risk. And I wonder if you mean that longer term or if you just mean that it's range-bound for a while, because this is a company that focuses on cloud-type services for smaller businesses. They're being run by a former CFO who's really trying to keep it uh, as efficient as possible. Are you saying that smaller companies that cater to small business are going to get uh, kind of blown out in the AI-driven era, or just that it's going to take them longer to establish velocity? Uh, great question. They don't really have much uh, DigitalOcean in particular. It does not have a, a lot of 
uh, cloud AI-based capabilities at this point. They're still studying it. So they're likely going to have to invest in it. We think most new startups are going to be AI-focused over the next few years. Probably 80 to 90% will have some AI capability with them. And DigitalOcean really is focused on startups. But for DigitalOcean in the short term and for a few of our other emerging cloud names, they are much more highly correlated with economic growth. Uh, and the economy uh, is, is clearly, you know, slowing here still a little bit more. They've been, you know, guiding down a little bit. They've not seen much in the way of organic growth the next last few quarters. But, and we think that will continue. Well, what ends up happening to, say, not only DigitalOcean, but say a GoDaddy that even uh, will, will sell through, say, say, Microsoft 365, right? D does that type of relationship where they're a reseller to small and medium business, mostly small business, change in the AI era? Or do they end up becoming a conduit through which some of these hyperscalers reach the smaller businesses that aren't necessarily going to be the focus of their larger sales forces? Uh, it, it's a great question. If you look at a lot of the, I'll, I'll use these business models at a high level, SaaS-based business models, they only really paid about 10% of revenues to the cloud providers historically. Going forward, it's going to be more like 20%. The cloud provider is going to be able to extract, extract a much higher of a tax at this point, and it is much more expensive. It remains to be seen, though, if these companies can pass that through or not. All right. Tim Horan from Oppenheimer. Thank you. Thank you. And still ahead from spa services to street food, Amazon's got big plans for its HQ2 in Virginia, which opens to the public next month. But our own Diana Olick is there, got a sneak peek at the facility. Diana. That's right, John. Not open yet, but we got a sneak look inside at the incredibly sustainable real estate development here. And do not worry, we will hear from an Amazon executive about return to office. All that next, coming up on The Exchange. Welcome back. The first phase of Amazon's HQ2 kicks off next week with employees moving into one of the two 22-story towers on campus in Virginia, just outside D.C. Our Diana Olick joins us from Met Park in Arlington, Virginia, with an exclusive preview. Diana? Well, John, these buildings will run with zero operational carbon emissions and will be powered by 100% renewable energy from a nearby solar farm. And that's just the beginning. I sat down with Amazon Sustainability Chief for an exclusive interview on both the building and back to office. I think it's incredibly important for a company like Amazon to demonstrate leadership and sustainability and to be out there to talk about where we're testing and trialing things, to also send demand signals to the market that these are products and services that we want. And the message resonates across 2 million square feet of sustainable space at HQ2. So this is mass timber, which is an important part of our sustainable building materials story. From the ceiling to the floor, which was provided by Carbon Cure, a clean cement company backed by Amazon's Climate Pledge Fund. There are 3,000 tinted glass windows for cooling and a light that tells workers when is a good time to open those windows. The building is also using special cooling technology that helps save about 7.5 million gallons of water per year. It's more water than is needed to fill the Lincoln Memorial Reflecting Pool. There's also a rooftop vegetable garden to serve the surrounding community and plenty of amenities for the 8,000 workers who Hearst says will be here at least three days a week by the end of the summer. We're still committed to all the hiring goals that we set out, so we'll continue on that path really over the next decade. And I think, you know, we, our policy at Amazon is three days a week in the office, so it's flexible. 
Now, as for the second phase of HQ2 offices that was recently delayed, Hearst wouldn't give a time frame, but said they are in the pre-construction phase, still going ahead with it and still committed to it. She added that as for the 8,000 workers coming here this summer, that's actually ahead of plan. They had expected 5,000. John? Uh, Diana, it's so interesting. I, I was doing some research ahead of my On the Other Hand segment about uh, work from home and, and return to offices. And in the South, more uh, people are going back to work in person, but in major cities, not so much. D.C., Maryland, Virginia, sort of right there in the middle. How are things trending with occupancy and, and days in the office? Is, is Amazon sort of out of the norm here or right smack dab in the middle? Well, it's kind of in the middle. And remember, D.C. is a government town, and a lot of the government is back to the office and back to work. A lot of these, in fact, most of these workers are already in temporary office spaces in other parts in Virginia. They're just moving from where they are now into the new offices. And Amazon also says, you know, given this space, and it really is something in the dog parks they have and all the other amenities for office workers, this is kind of a place they're expecting people are going to want to come. So D.C. is seeing a fair amount of return to office, obviously, the entire country is still way below pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, and I'm eager to hear over the weeks and months how small businesses around that campus might be impacted. Diana Olick, thank you. Coming up, Disney firing the latest salvo in its battle with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We're going to have the details and how much money the Sunshine State could miss out on from the Mass House. That's next. Shares of Disney are lower today after CEO Bob Iger announced the company is scrapping plans for a nearly billion-dollar office complex in Orlando. It is the latest turn in Disney's feud with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, which started last year after then-CEO Bob Chapek criticized the passage of the state's Parental Rights and Education Act, or the so-called Don't Say Gay bill, last March. But one analyst says the ongoing battle with DeSantis isn't the only headwind that Disney is facing. Joining me now, Tim Nolan, analyst at Macquarie, who downgraded Disney to neutral today, along with senior media and tech correspondent Julia Borston and CNBC.com political finance reporter Brian Schwartz. Uh, welcome, everybody. Tim, uh, how much of this billion-dollar real estate and relocation move is really about DeSantis, and how much of it is just hey, Disney's cutting costs, and this is a convenient way to uh, put the screws to DeSantis at the same time. Well, my downgrade was really not related to the Florida situation at all, um, but it was to say that there are a lot of things going on at Disney with a slowing business, a transition to direct-to-consumer, and efforts to cut costs. I don't know how much the billion-dollar uh, project in Florida is related to uh, you know, cutting more costs from here, or actually, if that might be a matter of it was an effort to cut costs, that's not going to happen. Um, so there are political issues that are, you know, probably weighing on sentiment on the stock. I don't think it's a big financial issue for the company. Our downgrade has more to do with the state of the businesses themselves. Where does Hulu play into that downgrade? Well, we didn't downgrade because of Hulu, um, but. Um, Disney has made, I think, clearer on the most recent earnings call that they are looking to buy in 
the one third uh, share of Hulu that Comcast owns. And that is a put call date that comes up on January 1st. We had previously been thinking that they might actually look to sell that or perhaps extend the current arrangement. But that's at least $9 billion, perhaps more, that Disney will have to uh, bring on board. Uh, and who knows, maybe there are some other plans afoot with Hulu. They made an, 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 an announcement about combining the Disney Plus and the Hulu apps. Um, you know, combining those services is good for reducing churn uh, in the bundled offering, but it's not so great for ARPU, for the revenues that they generate per user. And uh, maybe there's some more costs to come from Hulu. So um, a lot of questions. And then, of course, the big issue up in front is when are they going to put ESPN over the top? A huge issue for Disney to deal with, a uh, decision yet to be made on that. Julia Borston, what is the tightrope that Bob Iger is having to, to walk here? I mean, was it the last earnings call that he actually called out, congratulated Universal on its success in theaters? I mean, for a <laughs> Disney that was riding high four or five years ago, ouch. I mean, look, Bob Iger always has to walk multiple tight ropes, but I think now there are a couple of key ones I would point out. In Florida, he has to walk the tightrope of the fact that the company is incredibly invested in Florida. They are planning to invest $17 billion in their parks, hiring thousands more people over the next 10 years. And even though they can opt not to invest another billion dollars and build a new facility for Imagineers and other people who would have to move out from California, they are stuck there when it comes to Walt Disney World. So I think he understands that the state of Florida needs them and that that will be resolved over time. But in the meantime, he is walking that right tightrope. And on the other hand, you have the TV business. We've heard a lot about weakness in linear TV. There are two pieces of that. One is cord cutting. We are seeing increasing and in some, in some ways even accelerating cord cutting, which is challenging, which is why they are thinking about and working on taking ESPN direct to consumer. And then of course you also have the advertising market. Yes, they're investing in putting ads on Disney Plus. Um, they have Hulu, they have all these other platforms where they can run ads, but the linear TV ad business is weak because the overall ad business is weak right now. So that is really contributing to the uncertainty. If you want to talk about a tightrope, he needs to make sure that they switch over ESPN from being part of the TV bundle. And in fact, maybe being the glue that holds the TV bundle together, he needs to be very careful about the timing and pricing that when they bring that direct to consumer. Hmm. And Bob Iger has made it very clear he understands the importance of that decision. Okay, now Brian Schwartz, back to the political portion of this tightrope. <laughs> Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis looks like he's running for president. He's got to appeal to cultural conservatives across the country. And for a long time, Disney has been a favorite target when you want to kind of polish your cultural conservative, uh, conservative uh, credentials here. So how does Bob Iger win this or is Ron DeSantis going to win it uh, no matter what? Well, I mean, I don't know who's going to be the eventual winner of this, John, but I mean, at the end of the day, this is not going to end for Disney anytime soon. And the reason for that is, is that when Ron DeSantis, most likely when he runs for president next week, uh, this is going to be clearly a staple of his campaign. He clearly believes that he's won this fight with Disney, but uh, he's going to continue the war with Disney when he goes on the campaign trail. And that's something to really keep an eye on. 
if you're if you're a Disney executive, for, frankly. I mean, if Ron DeSantis, for you know, say the sake of this, for another year, is going to keep bashing your company one way or another, uh, I do wonder how that is going to impact the company at large, or at least the image of them. And, and more importantly, I mean, there, there are real questions about how is that going to help Ron DeSantis in a Republican primary for president. And the polls really suggest it actually could give him some form of a benefit as he tries to go to the right of former President Donald Trump, who right now is the front runner in the GOP primary. Brian, I, I think that maybe Bob Iger is Ron DeSantis's sister soldier. I want you to just, I want you to, are you with me on that? Because I think, right, because if you're a Republican, the, the, the attack is, oh, you're too in bed with big business. If DeSantis can, can ride this, I mean, am I right? Yeah, I mean, in a way, you're right. I mean, look, I think this is something where he is going to be riding this train and using this fight with Disney and the kind of, I think, prolonged war with the company as a staple of his campaign and really as a way to kind of formulate and can take base voters away from Donald Trump. But on the other hand, I'll give you a little tidbit of information here. You know, a few days ago, I was meeting with a very, very close advisor to Donald Trump, and I can't really say verbatim what he said about how uh, the former president looks at this fight between uh, Disney and DeSantis because it really isn't uh, good for the airwaves. But I will say that it's clear to me through this advisor that Donald Trump is looking at this battle in the way that DeSantis has lost to Disney. And he's clearly going to be using that type of messaging uh, against Ron DeSantis when unlikely if he runs for president next week. I'm not surprised, Brian Schwartz. Thank you. Thank you also, Julia Borston and Tim Nolan. Well, that's going to do it for The Exchange uh, just about. But I will be back at 4 p.m. on Closing Bell Overtime. Acting controller of the currency, Michael Sue, is going to join us. But up next, you're going to have Power Lunch, Tyler and Contessa getting ready. That is next after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.